God, we do ask that there would be every part about our life this morning that would honor you. That every part about who we are uh, would speak about your glory and your goodness. And it's with full attention that we come in here this the day, Lord, with um, some people with great burdens, some who've come in with questions, and some who've maybe even come in with skepticism, not knowing... Uh, can they trust? Will they trust? Might we trust? But God, through it all, you have over and over and over again shown us to be trustworthy, truthful, good, perfect in every way. And we realize that the very breath of our lives finds its source in you. So God, for those that are mourning, recovering, coming out of a fire, going into a fire, uh, we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would be upon us all so we could serve you well. We could speak well about who Jesus is. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where uh, this morning I want to talk about the power of your story. Uh, in John chapter 12, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, look it up on your smartphone, just Google uh, the Gospel of John 12, and you'll find your way over to it, or you can grab one of the Bibles that's uh, there in the seat back in front of you. And uh, if you're a little bit new to Bible study, uh, you, you'll find that the Bible has got two parts. It's got an Old Testament and a New Testament, and uh, in the first four books of the New Testament are all named after the guys who wrote those books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so find your way over to the gospel according to John. And then we're gonna, we've been walking through uh, this particular book for a long time, and we find ourselves this morning at chapter 12. And, and in just a moment, I'm going to read uh, uh, the first half of this chapter uh, about Jesus' arrival uh, and uh, about his, his in uh, a few days before the Passover. One of the things that I, I think we find to be true is that there is a power to the story that you live. Uh, there's a power to a lot of the stories that we live. It, your, your life is gripped with stories that are packed with emotions day in and day out, week after week, month after month. Uh, if for some reason uh, you're kind of wondering, how do I get a, a handhold on that, just think about the stories associated either with your children or your grandchildren. It, it can be the most mundane thing, I am told by people who are grandparents. Uh, it can be the most mundane thing that you hear a story about a grandkid that suddenly captures all of your attention, uh, that has you completely locked in, zoomed in, uh, honed into what's going on in, in their little bitty lives. You want to know about every book that they've read this week. You want to know whether or not her, she wore a bow or whether or not he wore his overalls. You, you want to know when they fell and skint their knee or when they uh, won a race at school. Every little detail, every little detail of the story of those little bitty lives is, is captivating because you are invested, uh, because uh, there, is a, there is a relationship and there is a communion that is not, really not characterized any other way. But in general, stories are like this all the way around for us. And in this passage in John chapter 12, uh, what we see uh, unveiled are some of the stories of people's lives. Uh, let me begin here in uh, John chapter 12, verse 1. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now remember, Lazarus is the guy that was dead, that Jesus came and raised from the dead. So he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. I mean, how crazy is this? Uh, there's, a, there's a dinner party, and the guy that you know had been dead and in the grave is sitting down the table from you. Verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Well, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Essentially, 300 denarii is about an entire annual wage of a, of a normal worker in this day and age. Verse 6, he didn't say this because he actually cared about the poor but because he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it that was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Well, the next day when the large crowd uh, that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coal. colt. And his disciples didn't understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, meaning after he was resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. And then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is one of those passages where uh, there is a lot to the story. Uh, there's a lot going on in a lot of different people's lives, and it, and it is very emblematic of even the stories and the, and the lives and the weeks and the months that we live in this day and age. I began to try to think through what are some of the stories that have been um, characterizing popular culture and political culture and even local culture, even church culture over the last couple of months. What is it that, that seems to grab our attention and hold it? 
You know, one of the, uh, one of the metrics uh, in our popular culture that you can measure as to what is it that is holding our attention currently is, is actually not the news. It's not Fox News or MSNBC. It's not the Drudge Report or Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or anybody like that. Uh, the, what you can actually find out is what holds people's attentions right now is the metrics of Netflix. Uh, that's what you actually can know what's going on in the culture. Currently, uh, Netflix is on the verge of losing something that's very valuable to them. Uh, the one uh, program on Netflix which is watched more than anything else on Netflix is a, a, a sitcom called The Office. As a matter of fact, right now, there are about 130 million subscribers to Netflix. And at any given time, uh, in any given week, about 7% of those people are watching the show called The Office. That means about 9.1 million people at any given time are watching what is arguably the greatest sitcom in the history of the world because it is so realistic. This is so valuable to Netflix that they are on the verge because uh, the, the production company that made The Office is about to pull it off of that platform. And Netflix is getting ready to write a check for $100 million to keep that show in order to keep those viewers, in order to keep all those subscriptions. I mean, this is, and, and why is that? Why is it that so many millions of people are watching this silly show about a mythical paper company called Dunder Mifflin? about Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute and Pam and Jim. Why? Because it hits so close to home, because people watch a show like that, and they say, well, that's not exactly my office, but man, it sure feels close to it. Kind of the crazy stuff that goes on that office and the kooky characters that inhabit that office, it sure feels like the guy that's in the next cubicle to me. You know, on another side of pop culture, uh, over the last week or two, there's been a lot of controversy around, of all things, uh, a, a razor blade company, something to which I am not very familiar with in this particular season of life. Uh, some of you have seen uh, the, the latest commercial that came out from Gillette, uh, the razor blade com commercial uh, about, uh, you know, it's, some people have said it's an assault against masculinity, other people have said uh, it's, a, it's a warning uh, against toxic masculinity. It, all of it is ironic. Uh, a, an ad company, you know, a company that makes profit on, on razor blades and shaving cream that has always used the tagline, the best a man can get, uh, has, is now going to be, you know, they, they now want to be the purveyors of, of uh, societal virtues about the best that a man can be. And so uh, the memes and the commentary and, uh, and everything goes around and around and around. All of us are uh, caught up in the, in the storylines of government shutdowns and walls or no walls at the southern border. Uh, all of us probably watch with great horror on Tuesday uh, when New York State passed the, the most egregious law about abortion, allowing a woman to uh, terminate the life of her child all the way through the third trimester. Uh, giving no protections to a baby that is born in a botched abortion, that, that it can literally be left uh, at a, on a table in a medical office just to simply die on its own. Uh, in, in my own fraternity of pastors, uh, this week we once again heard the tragic news of a, a pastor out in California who completed a suicide in his own life, uh, took his own life, uh, and there is a church that is reeling. 
Locally, we deal with the ups and downs of, uh, po- of politics and culture, everything from the fun that people have at the Manatee County Fair to the need to clean up the Palma Sola Causeway to traffic problems to coyotes snatching people's dogs to uh, a local story of embezzlement at a charter school. As a church, we we try to balance all of these stories of what's happening in the culture of tragedy and horror and and crime and misdemeanors, people coming and going away from the things of faith. And so here we, we try to carry the gospel locally and globally, and we do everything from a senior adult lifestyle festival to introduce ourselves to the community, to listening to mission reports of people who have gone to other continents all the way to just this past weekend, our assistant pastor John led a a realignment retreat for uh, some of the members of our church looking to kind of just get themselves centered back into that place of faith and anchoring their identity, always keeping it rooted in Christ. You know, all of these stories have great value to us. They are stories that reveal uh, exactly what we find to be something worthwhile, and they reveal what it is that we're going to sink our lives into. And the people that gathered around Jesus at this uh, dinner party where Lazarus is present, where it's a, a week out from the Passover, one of the high holy days of the Jewish people, all of these people, individually and collectively, they all were holding on to part of a story in their own lives. They were all holding on to a, a part of the story of what they were going to do with this man, Jesus. Uh, you and I are going to have our public debates. We're going to debate about governmental politics. We're going to debate about who's going to be elected. We're going to debate about where money ought to be spent. We're going to debate about everything from what we are to what we are not going to do collectively, societally, congregationally. But one thing that we've got to decide about is what is our testimony going to be? In this passage, what we see is that there are some people that their story is a testimony against His authority. It is, it is diametrically opposed to the authority of Jesus. Some of them held on to a testimony, really, of rebellion and hatefulness. Uh, what we find here is that we get, a, we get a testimony out of Judas of one of just abject selfishness. I mean, this is the story of who Judas is. The story of Judas is not the guy that you want to, that you want to emulate your life after. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, none of us name our kids Judas. I mean, that's not going to be on the top ten list of baby names next year. I mean, we avoid it because it is, associ- I mean, it is associated with a guy who obviously has a testimony uh, of selfishness and hatefulness. You know, he, he accuses uh, the, the, this woman uh, of wasting all of this money to anoint Jesus, and, and he masks it that of, hey, well, we could have done something for the poor when, you know, secretly he was just going to steal the money. And, and so there is a testimony that we can have against the, 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 the Lord himself where it's just a testimony of faithfulness. The testimony of the chief priest we see here in verses 10 and 11 is one of kind of murderous intent. It says, but the the chief priests had decided that they were going to kill Lazarus. And and the reason that they wanted to kill him is because they were losing followers. They were losing attention. I mean, the fact that they were not getting the cultural and religious attention that they desired caused them to say, we're actually going to put together a plan to kill a guy who miraculously has been risen from the dead. Like, we don't care about him. What we care about is are we going to get the attention? Can everybody in the room 
feel the, the gravitational force of me being the center of the universe. Do you all feel that is the way the chief priests want to operate? They want all the attention for themselves. And then there, there are the Pharisees who are just self-centered as well, where it's, we see there in verse 19, all of their plans had gone awry to somehow try to discredit Jesus. And they say, look, you've accomplished nothing. Uh, they, they basically stand in a circular firing squad, and they say, look, you guys are all a bunch of knuckleheads, kind of pointing the fingers at each other. You've accomplished nothing, and everybody's going after Jesus. Everybody's following him. These are the same reasons that people refuse the authority of Jesus in our own day. It is self-centered living, the desire for everything to be turned toward them so that they can be the ones that feel justified, so they can be the ones who rise to the top of the heap. But it did then, and it will now, and it will always fail. A testimony that sets itself diametrically opposed to the authority of Jesus will always falter. And so what we also see in this passage is the testimony for His authority. Some of them held on to a testimony that they wanted to follow after Jesus. We see here Martha and Mary who host this dinner, and then Mary comes along with this expensive perfume that some people saw it as a waste, but she gives it as an offering of worship. This is a place where she comes and she anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, this is an odd practice to us. We don't understand it. It's not something that you and I do where we go to the store and we spend a year's worth of wages on some perfume, and then we find somebody and we wash their feet with that perfume. But in this day and age, it is the same as kind of what you would think it would mean today. I mean, this is the ultimate of, I, I think that you are worthy of all of the expenditures. I think you are worthy of all of the investment. I think that you are worthy of all of my attention. I think you are worthy of all of my worship, that I would give up everything that I've got financially to come and to anoint your feet like you are the king of glory. It's this testimony that she gives. And there's Lazarus sitting there. And Lazarus' very breath and life is a testimony. It is the living example of the power of God at work in the world. And the testimony of Lazarus, we find out from these chief priests, is that people are leaving their teaching. They are leaving a dead religion in order to follow after Jesus, the one who has life. And then we have the crowds. The next day, it says in verse 12, when he enters into Jerusalem for the festival, they start quoting the Old Testament Psalm 118, where they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, where the psalmist says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes, who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And Jesus reminds them of who He is by fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah of riding a young donkey into the city, that the, that the Messiah comes in humility. But you've got a crowd that is declaring Hosanna, a crowd that is declaring Him as King. And these are the same reasons why people submit to Jesus today, because they see His worthiness and they know that He gives life. 
Not that he promises comfort, not that he promises some kind of worldly success, not that he promises something in the temporary that is going to make your life easy, but is that we follow him and we have this testimony because he is worthy no matter what the cost. Because the people who were following him, Martha is derided by the religious officials. Lazarus is being, he is going to be hunted by the religious officials. Everybody is after Jesus and all of his followers. And your testimony can be about you and the rights you think you have, or it can be about Jesus and the glory he deserves. This is what our testimony will be. It will be about you and the rights you think you have, or it will be about Jesus and the glory he deserves. One thing I want you to know clearly is your testimony can be for Jesus or against Jesus. The one thing it cannot be is neutral to Jesus. That option is not left open or available to us. You cannot sit on the fence about Jesus. Your testimony is going to be for him or it's going to be against him. The Bible is very clear about this. You are for him or against him. Our testimony is either going to be, look at me, or look at him. That is how we live. That is how we operate. And so we should be the people constantly declaring, look at him. Let's make Jesus famous. Let's make Jesus a big deal. Let's make Jesus' name known among the nations. Let's make Jesus known to my neighbors and to my neighbors across the world and my neighbors across the street. And you can do this. I want you to know clearly that you can do this because your testimony has power. The story of your life and the story of your faith has immense power. It has power to persuade. It has power to be an example. It has immense and tremendous power. This past week, as I was visiting one of our elderly church members who was sick, and, and he just began to um, just very kind of, just right off the cuff, began to just regale me with just tale after tale of how Jesus had worked in his life when he was young and when he was middle-aged and when he was old and now that he feels really, really old. I, and, and there was another point in the, lo- in the week where I was visiting with a, a member that was much younger, and, and all they could do was just remind me of how good Jesus had been to them lately. I mean, they don't, they don't have decades and decades of stories to tell, but what story they do have to tell kept centering back on just how good Jesus really is. Our story and our testimony has great power to encourage other people to live out our faith and to love our neighbor. It has the power to direct people to worship. When, when Martha gets down on her hands and knees and makes this tremendous sacrifice in order to anoint the feet of Jesus in a first century Palestinian kind of way that we don't do today, but we get the sense of it all. When she gets down on her hands and knees, what a declaration she is making about the worthiness of Jesus. And you and I are going to give a testimony day by day on a regular basis, and we even give a testimony when we get together for an hour and ten-ish minutes in this room about whether or not Jesus is worthy of our worship. 
whether or not Jesus is worthy of our words, whether or not Jesus is worthy of the affections of our heart, whether or not Jesus is worthy of our praise and our adoration. Your testimony has great power to either display to the world that Jesus is worthy of worship or whether it's just sucking up your time and you're just checking a religious box somewhere in your life. Mary's testimony reminded the disciples just how worthy Jesus is of our worship. Your testimony also has the power to display God's life-changing power. This is the very life of Lazarus sitting there in the room. Lazarus' testimony led people to understand the power of Jesus. It says again in verse 11, He was the reason many of the Jews were deserting the chief priests and believing in Jesus. Now, as far as I know, there's nobody in this room who has been previously dead and, and, and resurrected. I mean, as far as I know. If you have that story, I'd really like to hear it. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a Sunday morning, like uh, we'll have a one-day revival, all right? But here's what I do know, that all of us in this room either are or once were spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead, not kind of a bad person but making my way in the world. I was dead. My sin took me to death. I was under the wrath of God, and if I died in my sins, I would be eternally condemned and punished rightfully for the fact that I had been rebellious against the king of the universe. So you and I don't have a story that we have been physically raised from the dead, but we do, if you're a Christian, have a story that you have been spiritually raised from the dead. That's why we baptize people as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and that you have joined him of going from death to life, that you, your life was in the grave and has come out of the grave. And you have a testimony of spiritual life that is worthy of being shown to others, and your testimony can do the same thing as Lazarus's testimony, that it can persuade other people that Jesus is worthy of following because he has the power of life. And then there is the power to declare Jesus as the Savior. The crowds had this testimony displayed in their faith in Jesus. And think about, from this first century kind of perception, how utterly ridiculous this whole scene is. Here is a guy who grew up on the backside of everything in a blue-collar family with no royalty whatsoever anywhere to be seen as a son of a carpenter. And now, over the last three years, he's been this vagabond rabbi moving around, doing magic tricks here and there, and he's kind of grown a big crowd around him and now suddenly, on the precipice of the highest, holiest religious celebration that the, Jew, that the Jewish people celebrate, here comes this guy riding on a donkey's colt, and everybody is quoting Old Testament passages and laying down palm branches like he is royalty, saying, Hosanna, there's the king of Israel. This is the most unlikely king that ever kinged before. And yet, 
they are willing to put their faith in Him. And even the Pharisees acknowledge, they say, look, the whole world has gone after Him. Like all of these people are putting their faith in Him. Why? They're putting their faith in Him because they heard the testimony of a neighbor. They're putting their faith in Him because they're seeing the crowds all clamor around Him because they know that He has power and they know that He is worthy. Jesus did not operate in this vacuum where he was an ivory tower theologian sitting up on the pinnacle of some building, yelling down you know, from the cheap seats some you know, little bits of nuggets of wisdom for you to how to live and how to get through this business problem and how to navigate that family crisis. But instead, Jesus is the Savior who's down amongst the people and they're putting their faith in him. And this is the power of your testimony, to reveal that Jesus is worthy of worship, to reveal that He is the one who gives life, and to reveal to people that He is the Savior in whom you are trusting. And as I read the book from cover to cover, and as I consider the place of the church in the New Testament, as I think about how it is that believers and congregations operate, what I learn is that you and I are plan A, and there is no plan B. I mean, we're it. We are the ones who don't have to testify about Jesus. We are the ones who get to testify about Jesus. We're not the ones who are strong-armed to walk across the street to a neighbor and somehow try to browbeat them into intellectual submission about why one religion is wrong and our religion is right, but instead you get to live out the power of the gospel in your life and speak well of Jesus, that He is worthy of your worship, He is worthy of your faith, and that He really is the true life-giving one of the universe. And if, if we don't, we are no better than the Pharisees and the chief priests and Lazarus himself who just wanted to take from the money bag a little bit that was coming to Jesus so that we could pocket it for ourselves. I mean, we're just, we're just thieves of grace. We're just thieves of mercy. We're just thieves of the goodness of God at that point. And so I want to challenge you, believers, that you would be a testimony giver, a grace sharer, a troublemaker for God's gospel in the world. Let's pray together.